If you'll turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6, we're going to start at verse 26 and plow all the way to the end of the chapter. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. They said therefore to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Then they said therefore to him, What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, it is not Moses who had given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said therefore to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you may have seen me, and you do not believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the ones who come to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have not, or I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. The Jews, therefore, were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came out of heaven. And they were saying, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No man can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, And they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that any man has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and do not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews therefore began to argue with one another saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink of his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father, 
So he who eats me, he also shall live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread shall live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard of this, they said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to this? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you should behold the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives you life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. There are some among you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. As a result, many of his disciples withdrew, and they were not walking with him anymore. Jesus said, therefore, to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to who would we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Lord, we thank you for the word that you have given to us to get a glimpse of you and your glory. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who came in obedience, presented himself to die so he could raise himself again and conquer sin on our behalf. Lord, we thank you for that. I ask for Tom this morning you'd fill him with your spirit as he teaches. Thank you in Jesus' name. By next week, I want everyone here to have that memorized. <laughs> Tell you what, I've gotten to spend a good part of the last couple of weeks in that passage, and it is astounding. In the many conversations that Jesus has with various people that are recorded in the Gospels, conversations one-on-one or with groups, have you ever noticed how often those people are arguing with him? skeptically questioning him, (laughs) challenging everything that he says, dodging his questions to them. If you think it's difficult and challenging for you to share the gospel with other people, (laughs) consider for a minute what it was like for the Lord of glory to come and to dwell among the likes of us and to say things like this and have them opposed by human beings, to have people challenging every word that came out of his mouth. Proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ is a, it's a difficult proposition even for Jesus. So it's not going to be easy for us. But if he hadn't said these things to mankind, where would we be? This great passage that we're going to be considering for the next two or three weeks is that kind of interaction. It is a lengthy conversation between Jesus and a bunch of people about how men lay hold of real life and how they don't. 
Even the people that Jesus had just miraculously fed end up challenging pretty much everything that he says to them in this passage. And by the time the conversation ends, many, perhaps most of those people who had been following him around, disappear. They walk away from him. And when, the, when it's all said and done, we see at the end of the passage that the twelve, with one exception, the twelve disciples, seem to get it. They recognize that he has to tell them what real life is and how men come to have that life. That's a critical place for God to bring any human being. Jesus covers a whole lot of ground in this passage. But that is the unifying theme of all that he says here. What real life is and how men lay hold of that real life. From Jesus' perspective, this is simply a declaration. He doesn't ever really argue with people. He just proclaims the truth. Half the time, he doesn't answer their questions (laughs) because he's got his own agenda. But from the perspective of his audience, this is a conflict between their fiercely held assumptions about the matter of real life and Jesus' startling statements about real life. I'm going to do my best over the next couple of weeks to to sort of walk through some of the critical differences between those two approaches so that we can understand as well as possible what his approach is. And in case anybody was wondering, only one of the two approaches actually works. Only one of them ends up with men and women and children possessing eternal life. The other is a complete failure. Most of you here this morning already belong to Jesus Christ by faith. And so you already possess the eternal life that he promises. So how is all this going to be relevant to you? Well, first, no child of God ever gets tired of hearing about the gift of eternal life and especially the giver of eternal life. The gospel is both the meat and the milk of the word for us who belong to Christ. We never get tired of it. But there's something else that makes this passage exceedingly relevant for every believer. The marvelous truths that Jesus sets before us right here in jaw-dropping terms are the truths that you and I are called to bring to this lost, desperately needy world. We need to get that message right So when Jesus is spelling out the distinction between his way and man's way as as forcefully as he is right here, we need to be paying attention. And here's where we're going to be going for the next couple of weeks. I've changed the title a little bit from what you have in your bulletin. What I ended up with is how people miss life and stay dead. And then the flip side of that, of course, is how... Real life is imparted to men. But the first way men miss life in this passage is by confusing earthly provision with real life. We talked about that some last week. We're going to look at it some more this week. 
The second way that men miss life and stay dead is by trying to share credit with God. The third is by demanding to see so that they can believe. The fourth is by recognizing Jesus as a man but denying Jesus as God. And the last that I see here is by insisting on a bloodless salvation. The claims that Jesus makes here were outrageous to many in his audience, not just to the Jewish elite who had already resolved to do away with him, but even to the people who had been following him around, eager to make him king. As we saw last week, just before this lengthy conversation gets started in John 6, Jesus performed two amazing miracles. He fed tens of thousands of people. The number 5,000 was just the men. Starting with only five small loaves of barley bread and two fish. Then he literally walked halfway across the Sea of Galilee on foot and calmed a storm that was overwhelming his disciples in the middle of that sea. He did both of those miracles to set the stage for all that he now declares about himself in the rest of this chapter. Verses 26 and 27 introduce the first error committed by the people who were following Jesus around. And it's an error that is repeated by multitudes of people all the time, all the way up to today. That first critical error is confusing earthly provision with real life. People equate having plenty of food and water and clothing and shelter and warmth and health and, of course, plenty of money to buy more of all of those things with real life. Many from the same group of people that Jesus had just miraculously fed the previous day now tracked him down on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and they, of course, were ready for more. Jesus, we found you. You didn't get away from us. You're our man. All those miraculous healings of the sick and the afflicted and then that crazy miracle you did with the the bread and the fish, we're convinced you can indeed give life. The good life to whomever you want to. We're sold. In fact, we'd like to make you king so we can keep getting more of that life. But this time, Jesus didn't give them what they wanted. He knew what they wanted, but he refused to duplicate the miracle that he had done the previous day. Instead of giving them physical food, more physical food, he actually rebuked them for seeking food that perishes. A few verses later, he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. He's saying, you're seeking the wrong food, and I'm the right food. And if you listen to how many Christians define the mission of the church today, you, you might be thinking at this point, okay, it's great that Jesus straightened, worked to straighten these people out about the difference between physical sustenance and real life. But surely, if Jesus was able to feed them again, he should have done that. Isn't that what he would expect of us? Well, let's think about that. 
just a little. You've heard all these phrases before. The goose that laid the golden egg. The Midas touch, the, the, the what at the end of the rainbow? Pot of gold. Aladdin's lamp. She hit the jackpot. He won the lottery. Her ship came in. He's living the American dream. That kind of life is the stuff of wishful fables and hopeful daydreams for multitudes of people. Compare the theme of all those phrases with these well-known words of Jesus from Matthew 6, which came up in the worship this morning. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. What if God knowing that you need physical provision, decided to severely limit or even to completely withhold that provision for some part of your existence on this earth in order to move you from the daydream to the real treasure. Would that be unloving or would it be loving? In Deuteronomy chapter 8, As the Israelites were poised to enter the land of promise, God explained His reason for bringing them through 40 years of the most absolute dependence any group of people has ever had on God to meet every single need that they had every single day. He said to them, All the commandments that I am commanding you today you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. And you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And listen to this. And He humbled you and He let you be hungry. And fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. That he might make you understand. That he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Is God able to give you wealth and health and comfort? Of course he is. That, that's no sweat for God. He could do that all day, every day of your life without ever having to shed a single drop of His beloved Son's precious blood. That would be nothing. If that was the life that He intended for His people, do you think He would withhold it from you? But what if having all that provision all the time would keep you from real life. God knows that you and I need food and water and clothes and shelter and friends and sleep and whatever else constitutes the daily needs of a human being. God made you. He knows your needs better than you do. He's compassionate and gracious. 
He knows and cares about all of your needs and He's eager to provide those things to you as long as they don't keep you from real life. That applies to believers just as surely as it applies to the lost. Just in a different way. Why did Jesus feed this multitude miraculously and then just one day later refuse to feed them again? Here's a harder question. Why did Jesus miraculously feed tens of thousands of people right after he let John the Baptist be beheaded by an evil, corrupt king? Two of the other Gospels explain that the events in this chapter in John 6 happened right after the disciples heard about the beheading of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, now who... Who is he to Jesus? Well, let's see. Matthew 11, Jesus said he is the greatest man ever born of a woman. Now, if you were a disciple of John the Baptist, and you'd, you'd been listening to all that he said about this, this man, Jesus, who just come onto the scene, and you had heard about, maybe witnessed some of the amazing miracles that Jesus had been doing, And you knew that he had amazing power. And then one day you watched as your master John was carted off in chains and taken to a dungeon in King Herod's palace. And then you learned that King Herod had lopped off John's head so that he could present that head as a party favor on a platter to his wicked daughter so that she could appease her wicked mother because of the accusations that John the Baptist had accurately made about the grievous sin that Herod had committed in stealing his brother's wife. What would you think at that point about the trustworthiness and the character of this person, Jesus, that John had been talking about? Well... That might depend some on what he had actually promised. How about if God healed your friend's husband of cancer, but let your husband suffer an excruciatingly painful and disabling illness for years with no relief? What conclusion would you draw about the trustworthiness of God's character and promises? Well, wouldn't it depend on what he had actually promised? When most of us in this room hear the words prosperity gospel, we immediately think false gospel, and we're right. But how many of us have questioned the faithfulness of God when we didn't get what we were convinced that we needed? Did God ever promise to give us everything that we think we need? Or did he promise to give us real life? Our compassionate God intends for us to know that He will provide all that He knows we need during our time on this earth every single day. And He also intends for us to know that abundant physical provision does not equate to abundant life. If He withholds the first in order to give us the second, that's all grace. What God promises to give us what he relentlessly works to impart to his chosen people is real, everlasting life.
Many of you here know Karen Leith, Joyce's daughter. After about the 13th surgery that she had, after being thrown out of the windshield of her minivan and run over by it as it tumbled over her body, I talked to her in the hospital with her her husband, Randy, who was a dear friend of mine from seminary. That's how I met them. And she said to me, I have come to know my Savior and Master better than I ever possibly would have if I had not experienced all of this. That's real life. She wasn't complaining. She was rejoicing. The first way that men miss real life and stay dead is by confusing physical provision with real life. The second way men miss real life and stay dead is by trying to share credit with God. If you're the son of a powerful and faithful king whose kingdom is under siege by a fierce, evil enemy, what work will likely be required of you because you're that king's son? Well, probably a whole lot of work. His enemy will be as bent on your demise as he is on your father's demise. So you have to fight your father's battles. If you're the prince, you have to care for the people of your father's kingdom, and you have to do so in a way that represents your father well. The benefits of being that good king's son are huge, and so are the costs. But what did you do to become the son of the king? Well, let's see. If you were born to him, you did absolutely nothing. And if you were adopted by him, you did absolutely nothing. He did it. You are his son, but not by your doing. The second error that causes men to miss life and stay dead is their insistence on sharing credit with God for getting life. Verse 27, Jesus rebuked the multitude for being fixated on physical food, and he said, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. For on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. In the very next verse, the people respond to that amazing statement by saying, Okay, Jesus, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Isn't it interesting that the word they latched onto from Jesus' amazing statement in verse 27 is the word work? Is that word really the focus of what Jesus said in that verse? Let me read the verse one more time. And as I do, listen for Jesus' focus. I'm going to let you tell me what it is. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for on Him the Father, even God, has set His seal. What's His focus in that verse? Speak up. He is. And the life that He gives is. Both those answers are right. He's the focus. And the life that He says he gives is the focus. Now, 
Jesus is pointing out that these people are going after the wrong food. He's about to identify himself as the right food, the real food, the bread out of heaven that forever ends the real hunger in men. But what they heard him say was, you're doing the wrong kind of work. Jesus was talking about himself as the life they were to seek. But they were so fixated on controlling their own well-being that they completely missed his point. That assumption, their assumption, goes right to the bedrock of fallen human nature. Professing to be wise, men became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. That's the first in the the list of things that men used to create images of. This is the foundation of all false religion. If you do good things, you have good karma. Maybe in your next life you'll get, get to move up at least a rung or two on the food chain. If you do bad things, you have bad karma. You might come back a worm. If you're a Muslim, the scales that measure your works on the last day, if those scales lean even slightly toward the good more than the bad on the day you die, Allah will let you into his paradise. If you're a Jew and you've done a pretty good job of keeping God's long list of do's and don'ts, Yahweh will allow you into his eternal dwelling place. Who's in control of man's destiny in each of those scenarios? Man. But if you'll pardon the pun, that's not how this works. When the people asked Jesus, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. I've heard many different attempts to explain Jesus' use of the word work in that verse. I'll give you my understanding and you can do what you like with it. I'm convinced that Jesus uses the word work here in verses 27 and 29 the very same way that God through Isaiah used the word by, B-U-Y, nearly 700 years earlier in Isaiah 55. In both cases, I'm going to read that passage in a second, but in both cases God is appealing strategically to a predictable expectation in the nature of man so that he can then decisively blow that expectation away so that he can forcefully declare to men that this doesn't happen the way you think it happens. Isaiah 55, verse one, verses 1 through 3. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come. Buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. How do you buy water and wine and milk that God loves to give to His people? Without cost. 
How do you work for the food that never stops giving life to you? Without working. Because Jesus already finished the work required to make it yours. To buy that gift for you, God the Father had to turn His face away from His only begotten Son. To buy that gift for you, Jesus had to willingly suffer unspeakable shame and insult and mockery and torture and die completely alone, forsaken by His Father, publicly displayed on a cross to bear your sin and your curse upon Himself. If you say to Jesus, what work must I do to obtain eternal life, you are insulting the Savior of mankind. You are despising the gift and insulting the giver. You are cheapening, you are treating as common a gift that is costly beyond your wildest imagination. You receive the gift of eternal life by trusting the one who freely gives it. By trusting His promise because you trust His character. You take Him at His word. Believing that His promise of eternal life applies to you because you know that He is who He says He is and He did what He says He did. You believe the promise because you trust the promiser. That's how this works. On the very last page of your Bible... In Revelation 22, just before Jesus closes God's revelation about Himself to mankind with the promise of His soon and glorious return, you'll find this beautiful invitation from Him in verses 16 and 17. I, Jesus, have sent My angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come! And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Does it sound familiar? You think maybe the positioning of that promise in the last few few verses of God's entire revelation to mankind, a revelation spanning 1,500 years, might mean that that promise is important. How do you receive the only water that ends your spiritual thirst forever? How do you receive the bread out of heaven that ends your spiritual hunger forever? How do you receive eternal, the eternal life that Jesus alone gives? You receive that life without cost. The cost to Him was unspeakable so that the gift to you could be free. Does possessing that gift of eternal life, Jesus' own life, cost you once you've got it? You bet it does. Giving that gift to you cost God everything and cost you nothing. And that's really important because you were dead and dead people don't have anything to offer. But once you have His life, His resurrection life as your own, guess what? His life is now your life. You have become an heir of God and a fellow heir of Jesus Christ, the Prince and the King, who shares the very 
essence of his Father's nature. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. His suffering has now become your suffering. His work has has now become your work. Your temporary suffering for Jesus Christ while you're here is just as certain as your eternal destiny. And very soon His glory will become your glory in Him. If it worries you to tell an unbeliever that eternal life in Jesus Christ is a free gift received by simple faith in His character and His promise, if that worries you because you think it will somehow mislead people about what God really requires of them, or you think it will result in poor motivation to obey God, I believe you would do well to prayerfully consider why you find that simple, straightforward declaration so hard to accept at face value when the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit proclaim it so boldly in both Testaments. In verse 29 of this chapter, Jesus says, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. In verse 40, He says, For this is the will of My Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life, and I Myself will raise Him up on the last day. In verse 47, He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who believes has eternal life. In John 5.24, He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is already crossed over from death into life. He who does what? Believes. Trusts in His character and His promise. In Romans 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul, who got his gospel directly from the resurrected Jesus, says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. He's covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ that didn't come from Him. It is by faith in Jesus Christ alone, apart from any works you will ever do, that God takes your dead carcass and pours the life of His Son into you. It is by faith in Jesus Christ alone, apart from any works that you will ever do, that God clothes you with His Son's own righteousness now and forever. It is by faith in Jesus Christ alone, apart from any works you will ever do, that you stand in His grace, immovable, secure, sealed by His indwelling Holy Spirit for His eternal kingdom. It is by faith in Jesus Christ alone, apart from any works you will ever do, that you and I now exult in our living hope of the glory of God. And the believer's hope is not a wish. It's a certainty. We know that we will very soon be delivered from this cursed earth and from these cursed bodies into His glorious kingdom to dwell with Him forever. Buying that gift for you cost Jesus everything. He paid it all. 
He had to because you never had and never will have any way to buy it for yourself. That free gift is God's way for men to lay hold of eternal life. It's the only way for men to lay hold of eternal life. By believing the promise because you believe the character of the promiser. If you're here today and you have been uncertain about your destiny, I pray that today might be the day that you take God at His word, that you trust His character and believe His promise and receive the life that lasts forever. If you do that, your life will end and His life in you will begin and He will demand all that you are. He will be all that you are. If you are a a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, I pray that you and I will be bold and faithful to proclaim this gift and this giver. That's why we're still here, guys. You think God couldn't have taken you into his presence the second that he saved you? You're still here. I'm still here so that we can be his instruments to bring other people into his kingdom. That's what my brother Patrick was talking about at the beginning of the worship this morning. We're here to populate the kingdom that's going to last forever. And the most wonderful way that you and I show that gratitude from Hebrews 12:28, the gratitude that we are citizens of a kingdom that cannot be shaken, is to speak boldly about our Savior. You pray for me and I'll pray for you that we will bear this amazing message with boldness, with love, with joy. And that we will be entirely content with whatever God chooses to give us or to withhold from us while we're here on this earth because He's given us real life and nothing else matters. Father, we do pray these things. We ask You, Lord, to keep our eyes focused on the One who is our life. That will straighten out everything else. We are easily distracted, Father. You know, You know. But we pray that Your Spirit would be powerfully at work within us to continue to bring our eyes back to Christ because in Him is the only life that's real. We pray this in His precious name.